Hello, and welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, and I believe that the best leaders don't try to do it alone. As the CEO of Bregman Partners, my mission for over 30 years and the mission of this podcast is to help successful people like you close your leadership gaps, grow as leaders, and inspire your team, inspire all the people around you to get great results. With us today, and I feel fortunate about this, is a good friend of mine, Antonio Nieto Rodriguez. He's one of the world's leading authorities and thinkers on projects and project leadership. We're going to find out in a minute why that's so important. He was awarded the Thinkers 50 Award, Ideas into Practice, and is a visiting professor at Duke CE, IE Business School, and Skolkovo Business School. Antonio, welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thank you, Peter. It's such a pleasure to be in your podcast. I've, I've seen amazing people, so I'm really happy to make the time and have a nice talk with you. Really excited. Thank you. I am too. And I was excited that your book came out. I endorsed it as long, along with a number of, of other people that are, you know, that have done really great work and, and uh, some of whom you and I both know. It's called The Project Revolution, How to Succeed in a Project-Driven World. So let's talk about projects. What is a project, Antonio? Yes, I think the project is something that has a start and an end. So it's things that we try to achieve is making dreams realities is achieving ambition and 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 um, self-development and, and companies are are having more and more need for good project management project leadership competencies but not just companies but also individuals so a project is something that has a purpose has an end and you can measure the results. And are we talking about uh, only things like a massive SAP implementation in you know, a Fortune 100 organization? Or are we talking about a new sales process or even a, uh, you know, I, I mean, this is a personal thing, but a vacation? You know, like, yeah. like wh wh what's the scope of project that you think of? Well, my scope was everything that you can think about a project and anybody can do a project. So I wanted to go broad and, and, and deep into the, the concept of projects. I was not targeting just the big transformation uh, through CRM uh, implementation or a big M&A activity, but I just wanted to work on a framework that could be used by anybody, can be used by your kids, can be used by a student, can be used by a CEO. Uh, but also leaders in politics and government, they do a lot of projects and we don't see the results. So it's very broad. So and so we don't need a project management office to, you know, for every single project. We don't need a ton of infrastructure. But what we do need is a very clear process that brings us from idea to execution. We need, you know, a sense of there's a beginning, there's an end and there's measurement to know if we're achieving the things that we're trying to achieve. That's the, in the most basic form of project. Absolutely, Peter. And, and I think one of the findings of the book was I realized that project management was developed by engineers for engineers. So the frameworks, the tools that you can use, which are very good, they're engineers for engineers or maybe IT development people. So the normal people, the executives, the, the younger generations don't have time, will never learn this very deep technique. So I wanted to bring something light that you can use 
and increase the success of your projects, exactly what you just mentioned. You know, one of the things that I really like about it is this concept of a project mindset. Once you use the project lens through which to see life, you begin to, to actually feel more accomplished and set yourself up to accomplish more. Because if I think of my own leadership development as mm -hmm. a project, then I have to say, okay, I'm going to start now. I'm going to end at a certain point and I have to achieve something between now and then. And mm -hmm. so there's a concreteness to viewing the world through a project mindset um, as opposed to, I'm just going to, you know, like the 1% better every day. That's yeah. useful. There's a usefulness to that too. Mm -hmm. But there's, there, you know, you can kind of lose track as to whether you're going up 1% or down 1%. But if you articulate an end point of what you're trying to achieve, and I guess part of the question that I have is, how do you marry those two things? So is there a tendency at the end of a project, once I've achieved it, think diet? Like I go on a diet, I lose my 20 pounds, I achieve it, and now I'm done with the diet. And mm -hmm. then three months later, I find I've gained 30 pounds yeah. because the project ended and I'm no longer. So how do, you, how do you manage the end of a project losing the momentum of the change you're trying to create? I think that's, uh, yeah, absolutely. Project mindset, absolutely. I think it makes you somebody more focused, more accountable, more clear on what you want to achieve because you set yourself a clear goal in a time. Uh, maybe you don't go for the big, big, big project of losing 30 uh, pounds in, in, in a month, but you go step by step, but with goals and milestones. So I think that's the purpose and the project mindset that you refer, which I think is fundamental for individuals to keep developing. The second question, Peter, I think there's there's nothing better than finishing a project. I think that's when you feel accomplished. Um, there's a moment for recognizing your work. Maybe there's some lessons learned. You can go better and can do things different. The second time you do the same project, there's statistics which show uh, your, your success chances double. So um, every time you do the same kind of project again and again, your rate of success will increase. So I think moment of closure is important. Even if you think the project is not going great, just close it. And it's a moment to start a new one. So I wonder whether we could think of sustainability as a project, meaning, okay, I've lost my 20 pounds and, and I've achieved it and I'm going to celebrate. And now I could think maybe even in a light way of a new project, which says, you know, it's a 12-month-long project to stay at 20 pounds exactly. and, you know, to stay with my 20 pounds loss, right, exactly. to stay at that weight. And what does that mean and how am I going to measure it and what am I going to do and how am I going to declare success so that that doesn't just become, okay, this is the new normal. Maybe eventually it will be the new normal. And, and there are some new normals. There are some things that are not projects. When I have to process client invoices, I have to do that every month, every week, whatever it yeah. is. And yeah. that's not a project per se. But in order to get there, maybe we need some bridge project that says, I've, I've achieved the thing, and now I've got to create something I'm going to call a project to create sustainability in that achievement, and then eventually it becomes business as usual. Is that a good way of thinking about it? I love it, yes. And I think in general, we need some moments where we, we what you call business as usual, we don't evolve all the time. We need to... Uh, to, to stop the pace, but uh, I think uh, the transition and you say the maintenance of that uh, purpose or that goal, you can treat it as a project. Actually, the word project means project. So uh, if you're saying I'm doing this 
project means that you're projecting to achieve something. And if you don't use the word project, you're not projecting you. So I think, yes, you can project to keep your, your weight. You can project yourself to keep developing. I think maybe a good example, Peter, personal, I was extremely shy when I was a kid. I hated to speak public. Uh, I was afraid uh, when I was 16 in high school, but I said I need to improve to get better in speaking in public. So I made like a big program, basically a big project that I want to get better and step-by-step step, small projects. I will start doing that and then achieve that. And the next project was to uh, speaking from the five people and then 10 people and then 1,000 people. So that's, I think, a, it was very, very successful way to to develop myself in an area where I thought I needed development. That's great. It's great. So you've created a core, the foundation of the project is the project canvas. And it's mm -hmm. a process, it's a structure to ensure that projects go well. Because when I think of, you know, again, for example, a, a vision or a declaration, without a project canvas becomes yeah. empty. It's like a New Year's resolution. Like you exactly. say you're going to do it and then you end up not doing anything. So you could declare a bold vision or strategic intent mm -hmm. and, and yet um, you need some structure to make it into a project that's going to be measurable and people will be accountable for it and there's a beginning and an end and you know when you've succeeded and you've got, you know, the collective alignment of the team behind you. It's a lot of, you know, you and I have talked a lot that there's, there's a lot of similarity in our work. My work yeah. is very much about strategy execution and helping people lead in a way that drives from point A to point B. That's exactly what you're talking about with the project revolution. So share with us, if you would, some of the elements of the, of the canvas mm -hmm. that can help people begin to see, oh, these are, it's almost like a diagnostic. Think everybody, as you're listening to this, think of a project. Think of any project that you're in the middle of that you're doing. And now let's hear from Antonio, like the elements of the canvas and do a mental um, a tick list of, you know, do you have this? Do you not have this? And if the project isn't going as well, there's probably some element of the canvas you might be missing. Yes. Great. Thank you, Peter. Yes. The canvas was born basically, to be honest, I love the concept of business model canvas from Alex that we both know. Uh, and if and I thought, why not the same for projects? So I started to think, research a lot and use the canvas many times to see what's uh, working in reality. So the goal is what you say in one page, you can have a framework which will tell you it can be a project that is running. It can be a project that you're about to start. It can be a past project, but we'll be able to tell you, well, there's lots of red lights here. So maybe I should not continue. I should spend a bit of time thinking about uh, how to do it right. So it, it's kind of four big blocks, uh, Peter. The first one is the why. Um, it seems obvious, but Sometimes, uh, well, sometimes, maybe more often than what we think, especially in big corporates and organizations, startups, they have an idea and the day after they say, let's have a kickoff. We love kickoffs. People love kickoff. Eh? And then it's probably one of the words that everybody uses most. But then the second meeting, nobody shows up because, yeah, the idea is gone. So it's uh, that process of thinking, why, what problem are we trying to solve? What opportunity are we trying to capture is fundamental. i just give you a ex small example on the why. Um, but um, uh, Steve Jobs, when they did the iPhone, the first iPhone was called Project Purple. The first idea of the phone started in 2001. The project, official project, was launched three years later. Um, when do you have 
time to think, to explore, to make sure you have the capability, resources uh, to do the project is fundamental. So the why uh, is the first block. So people who are listening, think really strong on the why. Does it make sense? Does it make sense now? And the why um, has to really touch people, meaning it's not just an intellectual why. It's not just a conceptual why. It's an emotional why. It, it should create almost a physical response in people where they're passionate about what's happening and they care about it. And there's, you know, a deeper sense of purpose to, you know, when I, when I talk about leading with emotional courage and confidence and self-connection to others, commitment to purpose and emotional courage, the commitment to purpose thing is, is grounded, the foundation is built in mm -hmm. this why. Like, why are we doing this in a way that you're gonna care about so you really wanna make it successful? Am I thinking about this correctly? Absolutely, that's the second very important dimension of the why, is that connection, that passion, connection with the heart of the people. And and you you know that, that uh, the most committed people are volunteers who join your project or those who are touched by the purpose of the project. So otherwise you're going to struggle. Most organizations struggle with commitment on the projects because people are forced to or they don't have time for it. So yes, absolutely, that connection will thrive your projects. Great, and great, and that's great leadership. I mean, great leadership, a lot of people will say, okay, it's very clear there's a strong business rationale for doing this, mm -hmm. and they expect everybody to go along. And that might be okay leadership, but great leadership is to inspire them in a way where they go, wow, there's this really strong business rationale, and I care that we're gonna make this happen. I care about it, and I really wanna make it work. So that, that satisfies the why. Give us uh, one of the, uh, what's the next one? The next one is the the who. So I think um, this is more for uh, projects uh, where you have many stakeholders, you're working transversally, many business units. Uh, the who is the sponsorship. It has been researched and proven that about 30 to 40% of the success of projects in organizations are due to a committed key sponsor, an executive who puts the time, dedicates uh, time for meetings, to follow through, to take decisions. So if your project has no sponsor, or if your sponsor is the CEO but is not available, then your project will struggle. Uh, I, think that you last piece, I think that last piece you said it really needs to be underscored because yeah. it, you can, everybody can get a sponsor. It's mm -hmm. not hard to get somebody who says, I sponsor it, but it's hard to get a sponsor who actually sponsors it. Exactly. And so, you know, it's, you know, the best kind of sponsor is the one who says, I think this is important and I'm going to actually, you know, enlist you to make this project happen. That's a natural sponsor. If you're the one creating this project and you're going up to get an executive sponsor, mm -hmm. then, you know, they, they really have to be bought into it. I remember when I was working with American Express years mm -hmm. ago, this is in the early 90s. And we were rolling out a major project uh, for the establishment services organization. Tom Ryder at the point was the CEO. And he said, you know, uh, of, the, of the establishment services organization, not of American Express, mm -hmm. uh, but he was the head. And he said, what do you need from me? And I said, here's what I need from you. At every meeting you're in for the next six months, mm -hmm. I want you at some point between one and three times to slam your hand on the table and say, this work that we're doing is really important to me. Wow. Right. And if you do that, <laughs> this whole thing will be successful. And he yeah. said, great. And he did it. And eventually we rolled it out to all of American Express because that project was successful. And I would say a big part of it is because Tom Ryder did not let 
a meeting go by where he didn't make a point of saying, this is important to me. Mm -hmm. Great example. I love it. And I'm going to use it, Peter. <laughs> uh, there's one another example which I love is what happened in Chile with the miners. I covered that in the book, but uh, you know the accident with the 33 miners, and it was a decision of the president of Chile to say we're going to save these guys. And and what I would call the sponsor of that project was the minister of mining, and that person moved into the site, spent uh, the whole time there, was 24 hours a day there calling and helping and resources, that's executive sponsorship. And that's what makes projects succeed. I love it. So there's a why and there's a who. What's the third? The third is more the details of the projects. How are you going to do it? When are you going to do it? The timing. So that's where you go a bit deeper into some kind of project management techniques, is defining what you want to achieve, which is the kind of, we call it the scope or the requirements, having clarity on this is how it's going to look like. And then you break down into the timings. We need reasonable timings, a bit stretch, and then you need to have some uh, cost estimates. Projects are not for free. Your time, our time, but also maybe some investment. So this the, the third is what I call the core uh, project management part. This is what we learn in courses and, and trainings. Uh, it has to be done. It's part of defining what you want, uh, planning it in detail, allocating responsibilities. And then you have the second half of that block, which is the soft skills, which is about engaging stakeholders. It's about communication. It's about change management of mindset. So that's a quite heavy block, but it's a fundamental one. And it's, you know, it's like when you talk about the stuff we always talk about, it's that, you know, I've always heard of it as a triangle and I'm trying to figure out what part of the triangle, what part of the square I'm yeah. missing, but it's scope, time, cost, and quality. Exactly. Like the project could get bigger or smaller. It could take longer yeah. or shorter. It could cost more or less. It could be yeah. better or worse quality. And those are the trade-offs and you have to make those trade-offs. You could go really, really long twice as long and get the kind of quality you want, or you might have to sacrifice um, quality for, for a shorter time frame, or you might have to say, I'm going to have to spend more money. And, you know, and, and so you're managing those four elements of it. And then the managing of it is that other piece. That's the heavy block, which says, you know, how do we, how do we manage? And I guess the change management piece affects the other blocks too. Absolutely. Like when the change management piece affects the who and it affects the why. Uh, as well. So that is the sort of traditional block of project management. And the, and the fourth piece is where? Yeah, well, Peter, this is something that often is not mentioned in the tradition methodologies. Uh, the ma traditional project management will just cover the, the block that we just talked about. Uh, not so much the wine, a bit on the who, but the where is, where's the project taking place? Is um, If it's an organization and you have already 500 projects, do you have the capacity to deliver that big project? Where are you uh, bringing the resources from? And what's the priority of that project? The same way you're looking individually, we love to start projects for our, our own, but how many can you cope? You have your family, you have your kids, your hobbies, how many can you take over? So that piece, is fundamental for success. Less projects, more chances to make it. It's so interesting. I, you know the thing I keep thinking about, and this might be a cr you know an incredible non sequitur, but I think about Judaism 
and I think about the project of Judaism, and I think about when the temple existed back, you know, BC. BC. And and the temple existed, and and the where was the temple, right? The, everybody went to Jerusalem. Everybody like that was the center of Judaism, mm-hmm. and then the temple was destroyed, and. And the the religion itself, the culture, had to make a decision. And it, the turning point of, of the religion was to move the where from the temple into the homes. And Judaism moved from this central location to the project where changed. And it was in, arguably the same who and the same why and the same what, how, you know, and how. But the where and the when, but the where, all of those things stayed the same, but the where changed from this centralized location into everybody's homes. And arguably, the survival of Judaism as a religion, as a people, is based in changing the where, the location of that project from a centralized place and into homes. I love it. Great. Yes. It's really, I, I never thought of it until you just said that, but that's yeah. like, you know, and that's where you have Friday night dinners and that's where, you know, exactly. like the, the family and the home and you had to create a new set of structures and like it impacted the project in a number of different ways, but that maintained the survival of the people in many ways. Yeah. You couldn't have explained it better. Thank you. <laughs> that's, the, that's really great. So here I want to do some little quick problem solving. So let's say, for example, and let's just do this in like, you know, quick pieces of advice. Yeah. Yeah. Let's say um, there's, you know, if there's no rationale or strong business case, you got to just develop it or it's not the project. But let's say you've got that strong rationale, but the purpose and the passion isn't there so much. What mm-hmm. advice do you give? Like what, how, what levers can someone turn to kind of address that issue in their project if they need to inspire the people around them? I think it's about a question of going deeper on the why. Sometimes we are very narrow on what we define as a project, tends to be very rational. Uh, but I've experienced that when I teach executives, is I go to the question why for seven times. Why do we do that project? Say, so, well, because we need a new system. But why do we need a new system? What's going to bring to the company or to the individuals? Well, we're going to be more active. People will have more time. So it's uh, it's just uh, it's not so complicated. It's just the way we're, we're working, the way we think, tends to make things very uh, narrow. And I think it's about going deeper and deeper and deeper. And you'll find the purpose. You'll find the rationale. Ask yourself seven times. Why? And, you know, and don't be afraid to to actually go deep, to be able to say, you know what, we're doing this for world peace. I yes. was in a conversation with yes. um, the the DNA people, Ancestry.com, and, and we were sort of talking about ideas for them. And I said, you know, like, and I was a little embarrassed to say this, actually. One of the ways you should approach this is you're actually going for world peace that the beauty of, you know, everyone's trying to, everyone's finding out their ancestry and they're realizing everybody's blended. There is no pure anything. You're, everybody is from, you know, all of these different places. And the beauty is in the blend. Yes. The beauty of life is in the blend. And that's, that's not like, okay, I'm going to help people figure out their health outcomes based on where their ancestors are from. That's like who we are as a human race 
is mixed. And yep. you just see that as soon as you check out your DNA. And I was almost embarrassed to say that. I was a little embarrassed to say it, but I said it anyway. That's the emotional courage moment because I really felt it. And it really became a turning point in the meeting to just sort of say, yeah, you know, like we do care about that. And, and that's something you can get behind uh, yeah. in a really powerful way. All right. And how about the who? What happens if you're not getting that executive sponsor to really show up? That's a problem a lot of people face. Yeah, I think that's one of the most common issues. I think maybe you get a bit of executive sponsorship the first time you talk about the project, but then they disappear. They're too busy. They never show up to the meeting. So I think one thing that I try to do is a commitment. It's a, uh, as soon as I get the project, I commit or I ask commitment from the executive. I say, okay, uh, um, Julie, I'm ready to take this project. It's, it's huge. It's massive. I need you. I think you play a key role. Your, your, your contribution and your accountable, by the way, it's about 30%. So I need time from you. I need every two weeks, I need to see you for half an hour. And uh, if not, then there's no point of trying. I know it's not going to work. So you push, you, you pull them, but you push them the accountability on them. And next thing I do after the meeting with her, I would go in out, uh, Outlook. I put an Outlook for the rest of the year every Monday for one hour, half an hour. You know, I here's what I love about that. You're applying the project canvas to the executive sponsorship, meaning you're saying it is a project to manage the executive sponsor. And a lot of us, when we're managing executive sponsors, yes. because they're higher level, um, you tend to uh, back off of that a little bit. Yes. And you tend to say, well, you know, they're doing me a favor. And I think you have to hold them accountable the way you would hold anybody accountable. We talked earlier about, you know, our, our process, my process around five steps to accountability, which is clear expectations, clear capability, clear measurement, clear feedback, and clear consequences. So we're, we're, we, we feel like we can't do that to the executive sponsors. So we're weak in our expectations. They're almost always capable. But if they don't have the time, they're not capable. So if we're not clear on our expectations and they don't have the time and we're not really measuring whether they're showing up in that way and we're afraid to give them feedback yeah. because, you know, they're senior level, et cetera, and there are zero consequences that we hold to that accountability, then the ultimate consequence is the project fails. And you have to be willing from an executive sponsor to say, I'm going to be very clear about my expectations. And you just did it beautifully. Every two weeks, I need 30 minutes. I also need you, you know, in every meeting to say, this is really important. And then to say, are you capable of doing this? Do you have the time to do that? Great. And at the end of the two weeks, say, you know what? We met. It was the end of two weeks. You did it. So I really, you give them the feedback. We, you measure it. Or you know what? We didn't, we've, we've skipped three meetings now. It's been a month and a half and we haven't met. So, you know, the consequences, you, you actually aren't the right executive sponsor for this. Like, do you want to be or do you not want to be? And maybe the project fails and we just should stop it now. And there's plenty of precedent to say, stop the project. It's a sunk cost, but it's not going to succeed. Or in order to succeed, you either have to change or we need another executive sponsor. So holding them to it, but thinking of the executive sponsorship as a project, as a little mini project within the larger project is kind of a cool idea. It's a lovely idea. Yes, it's a project. And, and it's about courage. It's about putting the accountability where it belongs. I've, I had many situations where I went to the sponsor say, or you take a decision or we stop the project. And maybe they react a bit weird the first time, but then they love it. So don't be afraid. Just bring the elephant to the table and say, it's your responsibility. You want to 
uh, accelerate the project is going to cost you a million more is your decision i'll deliver but it's your decision yeah it's like that's that leading with emotional courage there was a big bank we'd spent they they i spent over a million dollars on us helping them to launch a new performance management program and within six months we moved their uh, performance management conversation rates from less than 50 percent which they had struggled with for two years to over 95 percent um and that was by the way in the end it was sustained for the last 15 years but at that point of the over 95 percent i looked at who wasn't doing it and it was all the executive sponsors who had paid us over a million dollars to make it who weren't doing their performance reviews. So I went back to them and I go, here's the thing. If you want this to stick, you're going to need to change. Here, here are the numbers. You yeah. guys in this room who are writing the checks are the ones who haven't actually followed through and doing it. And right now, following through by just doing it isn't going to be enough because all of your direct reports know that you haven't done it because they haven't gotten performance reviews. Yeah. So that's going to trickle down to the rest of the organization. If you want to change that, I'm not going to tell you what to do. All I'll tell you is it's got to be a big enough splash that people know you're taking it seriously. Nice. And they decided to do something that I never would have been bold what? enough to suggest. They said, we're going to do two things. The first, we're going to set a deadline earlier than everyone else in the organization to finish it. That wasn't surprising. And they should do that anyway, because it trickles down. Here was the thing that surprised me. They said, and we're going to list on the internet, on the internal corporate site, who has done their reviews and who hasn't. Wow. So it's like a public accountability and, you know, a little shaming. And they decided that. And I said, wow. yeah, I never would have been bold enough to suggest that. But I said, great. Yeah. And, and in that moment, the executive sponsorship changed, right? And they took sponsorship. And that's, in my view, why it was able to stick for all those years, because, yeah. because they did it. Antonio, it is such a pleasure. It is such a pleasure to speak with you always and, always, and especially on this topic. His new book, The Project Revolution, How to Succeed in a Project-Driven World. I love it because it's an interesting read, and it's also incredibly practical, you know, when you think of anything you want to read, you want to be inspired and you want to come away with some actual tools. And, and Antonio Nieto Rodriguez, uh, you deliver on both of those. Uh, thank you so much for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thank you very much, Peter. A pleasure. Thanks for listening. Here's what I've learned from working with some of the most successful leaders of the most successful companies. Every leader, every team, and every organization has a leadership gap. If you want to become a leader who inspires your team to get things done, then you've got to start by raising the level of your leadership abilities. You can start by taking our free leadership gap assessment at www.bregmanpartners.com forward slash quiz. Then dive deeper with a copy of my latest book, Leading with Emotional Courage. For more ways to become a truly great leader, check out our online offerings, in-person workshops and events, and my articles at www.bregmanpartners.com. Again, thanks so much for joining me today, and thanks to Claire Marshall for producing this episode. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.